regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where I hold long-form conversation with data practitioners and researchers to unpack the narrative journeys of their career. My guest today is Caitlin Kirkgrove, the CTO of Hex Technologies, a collaborative data workspace for building and sharing data projects using SQL and Python. Caitlin has spent her career as a software engineer building data analytics tools, first at Palantir and then later at startups including Remix and Hex. As a CTO, her focus has expanded from poly technology to growing and developing diverse and inclusive engineering teams. So Caitlin, glad to have on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, by way of introduction, you completed your bachelor degree in computer science at Stanford University in the early 2010s. So yeah, how was your overall academic experience at Stanford and what were some of your favorite classes that you took? Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, calling it the early 2010s makes me feel super old. <laughs> But um, Stanford was great for a lot of reasons. But I think the most valuable thing that they do there in their CS curriculum is actually just give you a lot of hard projects with teams where you write a lot of code and just getting that experience is honestly the best preparation that you can get for later going into industry. Was there any favorite classes that you recall taking? Yeah, well, I actually ended up really liking some of the theoretical classes like algorithms. I had always just played to this side of me that where I really liked, you know, mathematics and problem, like programming for me has always been kind of a problem solving endeavor. And so some of the classes that really focused in on that, compilers was another one that was really great because it was this awesome combination of here's the theory and then now let's actually implement a compiler using all of the math that you just did. Just go maybe a little bit earlier than that. I'm just curious what attracted you about computer science. What did you do? You decided to study that in college? Yeah, well, I started programming pretty early, but I never really saw it as anything more than, like I said, a fun puzzle solving challenge. So I was playing around with Python in eighth grade. My dad's a huge nerd too. And for Christmas in eighth grade, he gave me a book on learning Python, which, you know, is not a typical eighth grader present, but it was actually awesome. And I spent all of Christmas break just like learning how to build this little, it was essentially like a mini Neopets. If you're all, <laughs> this is also probably dating myself, but you can build it in Python. And that was sort of the project that I did. But I didn't really realize until kind of getting through a few computer science classes in college, what that would mean as a career. I'd still been thinking like math, science, generic STEM career, but it, I don't know, it became pretty clear after a few classes that, you know, this is what I love doing. And at that point, that was, it was late freshman year that I decided that that was really what I wanted to major in and what I wanted to do. Thanks for sharing um, some of the anecdote on how you get started. At Stanford, you also spent a decent amount of time as a teaching assistant for two CS class specifically, CS 106 Programming Methodology and CS 103 Mathematical Foundations of Computing. So, you know, just out of curiosity, what are some of the things that you have learned 
from teaching that has impacted the work you do today? Yeah, so these are both introductory classes. One is the very first programming class and the other is the very first theory class. And I feel like sometimes in tech, you get a bit of elitism around people who can code and people who can't code. And I think one thing that I really took away from teaching two different CS intro classes was that people of all stripes and all backgrounds can learn to code if they have the right environment. And I do think Stanford had a really fantastic introduction to CS curriculum. And this is one thing that I actually think we're seeing borne out in the data and analytics space today, which is as a lot of analytics becomes more code-driven, you have this whole big group of people who 10 years ago might've been doing Excel, might've been using sort of more point and click BI tools. And now these people are writing really sophisticated stuff in SQL, in SQL and Python. And that observation is a big part of, you know, what we wanted to build when we were starting Hex, this what we call analytically technical group of people is a really core part of the product philosophy here. Yeah, I see. And I'm just curious, like, you know, when you be in TA and try to explain some of the more complex technical concepts to the non-major and the non-technical, what are some things that you found useful to draw that analogy and, and get them excited about like a complex topic like math or CS? Yeah. Yeah, I think the big thing is to connect it to something that's actually a little bit more concrete and relevant. So one thing that I think particularly CS106A did really well was to basically actually give people enough supporting libraries and things that they could build something real right away and kind of interact with it. So they basically had what they had was a really simple graphics library that you could write really basic Java code and then have these graphics and basically build little games that you can interact with. And I think that instead of just writing sort of like abstract algorithms that have inputs and outputs, I think having a little bit of that tangible output um, where you could visually debug things and stuff like, oh, the ball's over here, it's supposed to be over here, really gave folks a nice entry into some of the actual algorithms that they were learning. And I think the other big part of that is what, what I was saying about the scaffolding and learning computer science, there's a huge amount of stuff to learn and learning to program. And I think making sure that people don't have to learn it all at once. And like, you're not actually learning, oh, we're learning the command line at the same time that we're learning basic Java at the same time that we're learning how to use an IDE. And then you can kind of learn pieces of it at a time really allows it to be a much more approachable experience for a lot of folks. I see. Yeah. So I try to take away the abstraction and make it more complete and then try to sequence the knowledge in a, in a way that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For the beginning. Yeah. Those are very, very good insights. Uh, during your undergrad specifically, you also completed three separate software engineer internship. First summer was at Harvard, the second summer was at Facebook, and the last summer was at Palantir. Reflecting back on those experiences, what were some of the valuable lessons that you have learned? Yeah, so having been an engineer for a while and a manager for a while, one thing that I've found about really effective engineers is that only a certain amount of it is actually kind of your raw technical ability. And a lot more of it is about being effective inside teams and organizations and large code bases and things like that. And so one of the biggest skills I think that I had to learn early on in in an internship as, as part of this is just how to get unstuck on things. I think in college, you end up with a lot of these problem sets that you have to do by yourself. And so you develop all of these skills around like how to do things by yourself. But that's not true when you get into industry. In industry, you have all of these resources around you. And 
you know, whether it's like, oh, I need to go ask for help on a technical question, or I just don't have the information that I need to build this piece of the product. I need to go ask for that. Engineers who can do that particular thing really, really well, just get a ton, a ton more done. I definitely struggled with it early on, you know, asking for help is very hard. But once I was able to do that, and I kind of learned that through my first few internships, I feel like that really helped me level up as an engineer. I see. Do you recall any specific technical projects or things that we work on at Facebook and Palantir? Or is there any relevant things that you work on that connect to some of the academic classes that you work in Stanford? Yeah, I think one of the things that really stands out to me was my Facebook internship. It was my first time really operating under a fair amount of uncertainty. We were trying something fairly experimental. And I got kind of halfway through my internship before realizing that maybe we were building the wrong thing and we needed to do something different. And by that time, there wasn't a ton of time left to actually build the thing that we were supposed to be building. And the reflection that I had after that internship was basically, I, you know, looking at this particular project, I probably could have realized that a few weeks earlier. When internships are pretty limited, so a few weeks matters. If I'd done that and been a little bit more proactive about reaching out to the designer, reaching out to the product manager and saying, hey, you know, I don't really understand why we're doing this. It, you know, doing it this way. Is there another way that could be more effective? I would have had a bunch more time to actually then deliver the end thing. I see. So it's about like coming up with the right expectation and before committing into a certain part, try to scoping the project in a sense and get feedback from that, right? Yeah. And I think also after the initial scoping, being willing to adjust course when you realize that things maybe aren't working the way you thought they were. Absolutely. After finishing your undergraduate Stanford, you joined Palantir full-time as a software engineer, initially focusing on building web interfaces. And over the years, I believe that you have built products for both government and commercial customers, and then working with both designers and infrastructure engineers to develop a full-stack application with Vue. So would you mind sharing a couple of the technical and organizational challenges that you encounter during the development of these applications? So if you're familiar with the canon of software development, you might be familiar with something that's called the second system effect, which is basically that anytime you try to rewrite a system to make it more modern, better architected, whatever, everyone tries to cram everything that they hated about the original system into this new project. And as a result, it just becomes this big bloated mess and it never shifts. But I think the reality is sometimes you do have to do that. And at the stage that I was in at Palantir, we were maturing from basically a small scrappy startup into you know, a much bigger, more mature company. And we had to do this several times, whether it was to modernize or to better architect the things that you know, needed to scale at this point. And so one of the big things that I took away from my time at Palantir is how to do this effectively. And I think the big thing for me is one, when you're doing this, always make sure that you're delivering value and you're not you know, just sort of building this to build it because you think it's like from an engineering perspective, the right thing to do, you actually need to be del- delivering value to your end customer they'll, or they'll never, never switch. And then the other thing is to do it in pieces, to do it incrementally so that you don't end up with this huge stack of things that you need to coordinate at the end, because that can be very, very hard to do. And we'll just, you know, tend to drag out the process a really long time and potentially prevent anything from ever shipping. I see. I'm just curious, how was Palantir as the first job out of your career? 
maybe like go back a second a bit. Why, why did you, you know, decided to join? As you mentioned, the company at the time was in the growth phase from startup to bigger phase. What attracted you about the organization that, you know, you chose as your first job? Yeah. So Palantir was a, honestly, it was a phenomenal place to be early in your career, almost to a fault. And I think a lot of those things were also what attracted me to the company. It was, I mean, besides the software was really interesting. The people were really great. I thought, I think a lot of the problems that they're solving in the civic space, I thought that that mission oriented aspect was really interesting. Like I got to work on legal discovery. I got to do, you know, disaster response. There's a whole bunch of stuff that I think was really, really compelling from a product standpoint, rather than going to work on, you know, another company that's serving ads. That was one thing that really compelled me there. And then on the career side, Palantir is basically a bunch of loosely related individual startups, or at least that's the way it was at the time. And so coming in early on, you get a lot of responsibility very, very quickly in ways that sometimes I was like, is this the right way to be running this project? But from my perspective, it gave me a lot of opportunity to learn not just the technical side of things, but also how to do product management, also how to like do little mini go-to-market motions, right? Because you're, you sort of build this product and then you have to kind of go out and talk to the rest of the company about it and, and why they should be using it and things like that. And in a lot of ways, it was, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was getting an introduction to what it's like to start a company just sort of within the scaffolding of this much larger thing. And I think that's been hugely successful for Palantir because it actually has produced a lot of innovation internally there because individual engineers and product managers and folks are super empowered to go and experiment with a new thing. And if it works, great. And then sort of run these things over and over again and also just develop their internal talent by giving them opportunities to do this stuff. And so you see now that kind of flowing into a lot of startups coming out of the Palantir alumni network. And I think that's like largely due to this way of operating. Obviously there are downsides. There is definitely... Palantir probably could have used a little bit more overall coordination on the engineering team. Um, but from a career perspective, I learned so much in, you know, a very short time there that I don't think I would have gotten in a lot of places. Yeah, that sounds like a decentralized model that when uh, people have a lot of responsibility to, to work on a variety of projects, a job perspective on trying to learn as much as possible and on a variety of different areas outside of the engineering aspect. And it seems like we'll talk about that later on in your conversation, but this sort of set the foundation for some of your later work starting a company. As you transition to more of a tech lead role at Palantir, you became responsible for both the technical architecture as well as the code quality of product. And also you take on more mentorship and growth of you know, the engineers and even the product direction and prioritization of features. You know, as, as we kind of alluded to in the previous answer, but what have been some of your big learning curves to deal with this additional responsibility during that period? Honestly, I think the biggest one and transitioning to be a tech leader or manager is you have to learn how to let go a little and make space for other people. When you're a good engineer and you get promoted to a lead, especially if it's a lead of people who are somewhat more junior than you, your first instinct with a lot of things is like, oh man, I could do this so much faster or I could do this better. And you kind of have to resist that instinct because you can't do everything that's not scalable. And it doesn't really, you trying to jump in on every single thing to make sure it's perfect doesn't help anyone, doesn't help the team, doesn't help the company. 
And you have to learn how to take a step back and instead of doing things yourself, teach folks to do the things that you can do. And in the short term, yeah, it's not going to be perfect, right? Like people are learning. But in the longer term, you're going to have a much, much stronger team for it. And also the people on your team will have gone through a lot of professional growth themselves, which is should be exactly your goal when you're a manager of people. Besides the mentorship and growth in that aspect, are you also responsible for the product aspect? Like how do you cultivate product intuition as an engineer? Yeah, I think there's two things. One is always making sure that people are listening to the end user and have a deep understanding of the pain points that the end user has, what problems they're solving, what workflows we're addressing, what the persona is, and really for having a core understanding of that. I think that's one of the things that I most often see get lost by the time these feature requests make it to engineering. It comes in, you know, maybe customers, the user has talked to customer success, customer success has talked to product manager, product manager has talked to the engineer. And by that point, it's like morphed into this like feature request, you know, in a vacuum. And it's really hard to understand and make good product decisions because you just have lost all the contact. So one thing we try to do a lot here at Hex is make sure that everyone on the team, including engineers, is actually getting direct customer contact and actually hearing a lot of these things firsthand. So that's one thing. And then the second thing that I always really try to do is make sure that you are measuring whether or not something is successful. I think most people who have worked, you know, in a product capacity for a long time in tech have had an experience of being really sure that something was a great idea and then shipping it and then finding out that it wasn't the right thing after all. And I find that to be just, you know, a little bit humbling, you know, it's like, hey, you know, you don't always have all the right answers, but it's important to realize that that's often the case. And to, after you've built the thing that you think is the right thing to go and actually pay attention to, are people using it? Like, what are they saying about it? Things like that to actually validate that, okay, this was the right thing to build and we should build more on top of it versus trying something else. Yeah, I see. So to get the reader talking with the end users directly and then carefully construct measurement metrics and making sure to validate the hypothesis, right? Yeah, those are two great insights. It seems that you have a very wonderful time working at Pantier, you know, after spending more than six years there, you um, became a data engineering manager at Gramix Technologies, in which you led the team building your special data pipelines on top of some of the technologies like AWS, PostgreSQL, and Apache Airflow. First of all, like, you know, why did you make this transition to a smaller startup? And um, double-clicking on some of the engineering challenges, can you discuss some of those data engineering challenges of defining a work roadmap in um, the rapidly evolving transportation analytics industry? Yeah. So I think after being at Palantir for a while, I did want to try something earlier where you get to build something from the ground up. And that was really the opportunity that I had at Remix. And I was really excited about it. First of all, it was Palantir. Everything is built in-house and they have a lot of really good technology. So first of all, it was a really great technical opportunity for me to see, you know, here's what a modern data stack looks like outside of Palantir today. And also at the same time, getting to build up that team, build up the processes, build out a little bit of the product, the actual data pipeline product that they were building from the very beginning, which was something that I never really got at Palantir, which was already eight years old by the time I got there. So that was really exciting to me. And I do think that that experience was was super valuable in then going and doing something completely from the beginning, starting a company. The technical challenges of transportation data are really, really fascinating. 
also kind of frustrating. But there's, I think, two big reasons for that. One that we ran into a lot was there are no standards for a lot of this stuff. So you go, you try to build a product for different cities and every single city has a different type of data and it's in a different format. And over the past 10 years or so, big companies like Google and a few other places are trying to slowly move people over to various standards, but there's still a lot of data out there that's super useful for planning and is just not standardized at all. So how do you build a product, like not a consulting firm, how do you build a product that actually handles all of this different, all of these different types of data? It's really, really challenging. And then the other thing is a lot of transportation data just has a lot of data quality problems and that's inherent in the type of data. So one example is GPS data. GPS is notoriously inaccurate. You can't tell if a bike, for example, is riding on the street or riding on the sidewalk. It's just don't have that level of accuracy. And a lot of the times these, this GPS data is like from a moving vehicle, for example. And so not only can you not tell exactly where it is, but also services cutting in and out, you're dropping data points, all of this stuff. And when you try to pull all that together and do useful analytics on top of it, there's this data quality challenge before you can even get to something that's kind of like a useful aggregate visualization. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Well, first of all, I just want to going back, maybe an interesting part to bring up because I believe throughout your time at Padia, you mostly focus on the software engineering as broad as, as possible, right? You know, from developing front end to more infrastructure stuff and then academic, you more focus on the data engineering thing. So why you, you know, become attracted to, to data engineering specifically instead of staying in the software domain? Yeah, well, one thing I realized at Palantir is that you can have all of the nice, shiny analytics tools that you want, but if your data is not in a good format and it's not in the same place and it's not clean and all of these things, honestly, this is a lot of the value that Palantir as an organization would sometimes bring to these big companies is this knowledge of how to actually clean up your data and build maintainable data engineering pipelines. And so I'd always been more on the analytics product side and moving to Remix, I saw it as a really great opportunity to get deeper on the data engineering side, which in my mind was really part of a sort of complete end-to-end data-driven operation. Like you can't do the analytics without doing the data engineering first. I hadn't really at Palantir, I'd worked with the data engineering side of things, but I hadn't really ever gotten deep on it. So that was really exciting to me to be able to actually do that. Thanks for sharing that. You mentioned a little bit of the, you know, geospatial data in a standardized format and, you know, it's it's challenging to even collect and ingest them for visualization purpose. I'm just curious, what about it's like a typical geospatial data pipeline look like? Uh, what are some of the technologies that you use to ingest the data at the source and transform it or building research on top of it, you know, from like very basic level stack for that? Yeah, so I think it probably depends a lot on the scale of the data that you're looking at. Our pipeline wasn't set up for enormous scale. So quite frankly, we got a ton of mileage out of the PostGIS plugin to Postgres. So really, we were using all of sort of your standard, you know, data pipelines. You're using Airflow, you're using PostGIS. And then kind of, you know, mostly just doing things in those two tools because we weren't at the super high data scale that you see for some of these things. And then at the end, using technologies like Mapbox to sort of do the visualization. There was one other core piece of what we were doing, which is not sort of generalized to all of geospatial data, but is really useful for transportation data, which is using OpenStreetMap to basically correlate, okay, well, here's this data point. What 
street segment is it actually on? And that actually has a lot of interesting algorithms. And so that was a core piece of our pipeline to do the street snapping that wouldn't necessarily be in you know, all geospatial data pipelines, but I think has a lot of really interesting algorithms and technology there. And you can also sort of do, when you have the street segments, you can kind of do these routing algorithms to see you know, what, you know, where people are going. Remix actually had a bunch of these where to figure out, okay, well, here's the time it takes to get from one place to another and doing those on the street grid was really interesting. Thanks for sharing that. I personally don't know much about your spatial data. That's why I'm asking that question because this seems like a very unique, very, this, you know, very unique challenges. And yeah, as you mentioned. Yeah, you know, there's, there's yeah. so many interesting things there. Like you have to think about map projections and all of this stuff. It's just a very unique area of analytics. For sure. Circling back on the, on the career and non-engineering aspect, as your career progress, your focus has expanded from poorly developing technology to growing diverse and inclusive engineering teams. What were some of the valuable leadership and people management lessons that you absorbed throughout this scaling process? So I've been a manager for a bit now. And over that time, I've found that there's a couple really crucial things that you can provide uniquely as a manager to people. One is coaching and professional growth. Uh, You're the person who knows these people the best professionally, and it's really your job to help them be the best possible version of themselves in that aspect. That one's pretty well known, but I think one that's maybe a little bit less obvious, but I've also seen just make a huge, huge difference in people's careers is as a manager, you're not just a coach, but you're also an advocate. You're the person in the organization who is best positioned to set your reports up for success, whether that's getting them the resources that they need or finding them you know, a great next professional opportunity. You're the person who's going to be doing that for them in the org and managers who do that well, I think have much more successful and much stronger teams for it. Coaching and and being an advocate. Maybe you can give like an example. So like listeners can actually visualize how that looks like. How do those manifest itself in the day-to-day operations of either your time at Remix or even actually now you can recall any specific instances where you become an absolute advocate for one of your reports. Yeah, I think it's hard to talk about specific examples because as a manager, you don't really want to share people's necessarily personal stories. But there have definitely been a couple examples where I've helped people, actually people who are really talented on my team, move on to be tech leads of new teams that we're forming. And I could do this as a manager because I'm talking to all the other managers. I'm talking to the directors. I know when there are opportunities to start new teams And my direct reports probably aren't going to be aware of those because they're not involved at the company-wide planning level. So when there's an opportunity that pops up that, you know, is a good technical fit for someone on my team who I think is ready to step into a more tech lead role, I can match make that at the manager level, I think is one example. In terms of coaching itself, like when you mentioned coaching, you mean not just on the technical level, but also in terms of motivation and fit in terms of projects, right? What are some of the qualities of a good coach in your mind? Yeah, it's definitely not just at the technical level. Like I was saying earlier, some of the most important things and also the things where the manager can uniquely be helpful and also some of the hardest things I think to coach are on the non-technical side. And so I think about a lot of these skills like project management and communication and things like this, it can be helpful to get sort of like direct pointers on like, hey, you know, when we did this project, like you, you know, your planning went like this. And I think 
there were a bunch of things that we hit along the way that if we'd done the planning a little bit differently, or maybe, you know, those were inevitable, but if we'd communicated them a little bit differently, the project would have gone more smoothly. A lot of that is, I think, the type of coaching that can be very helpful for engineers. But that's like, I guess, more on the junior side. On the more senior side, a lot of it is really just listening and trying to understand, you know, what they want, what they enjoy, and helping them think through where they want to take their career. Because once you get three, four or five years into engineering, there's a lot of different paths you can take. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily have a strong framework for understanding which one they want to choose or even how to make that decision. So that is a lot of just like, again, understanding the people who are reporting to and like helping them think through those options. Yeah, a lot of these things, listening, communication and I think it's universal, not just on, on mentorship and growing teams, but like, as you were kind of really mentioned earlier, even when you were TA, right? You do all those things for non-majors and uh, even with uh, product management, you have to do that for customers as well. So just apply some of those skill sets to your reports. That'd be super useful. Since November of 2019, you have been the co-founder and CTO of Hex, the modern data workspace for teams. So can you share the story behind the founding of the company? Barry and Glenn and I, we all worked together in various capacities at Palantir and then all kind of went our separate ways out into the real world. And when we kind of came back together a few years later, I think really we just realized that Hex is the product that we've always wanted to have, that we've always wanted to build. We've spent our entire careers building and using analytics tools. And I think it became pretty clear pretty quickly that there is this big hex shaped gap that we felt like we could uniquely fill based on some of our experience. You mentioned the three of you work together at Palantir. What about, you know, the two co-founders that stood out to you and why do you choose them as co-founders? Yeah. So, I mean, Glenn is one of the smartest people I've ever met. He's just a phenomenal engineer. And then I think Barry, one thing I've always really appreciated about Barry is how deeply he thinks about things like team and product. And I think those are just really, if you want two qualities in a CEO, those are that. He also has a lot of other skills like, you know, project management and things that I think are really useful early on. But I think in terms of, you know, you talk to people about like what the responsibilities of a CEO are, it's like building your team and then building the right product. And I don't think I've ever seen someone who's been sort of as good at, at both of those. And that was really ultimately what made me decide that this team was, this was the team to start a company with and never going to get a better opportunity than that. Between the three of you, like, how do you make decisions? What's the framework of making big decisions from like coming up with the name, the company to hiring the things of that? Just so had a high level framework. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the time we just are able to talk through it and it's a very collaborative process. And we sort of, we've all started from, I think, a fairly similar product vision and some fairly similar experiences. So in a lot of ways, we're all on the same page and we can talk through things and come to an agreement over time about, you know, what's the right direction. But sometimes you don't. Sometimes you have different opinions. And one thing that I've really appreciated about this founding team is the ability to basically disagree and commit basically being like, hey, you know, maybe you feel very strongly about one thing and I sort of disagree, but I don't feel as strongly. So let's try your thing. Let's like measure if it's successful and, you know, and then we'll go from there. I think that way of again, measuring and also being willing to try things that you don't necessarily a priori agree with has been super, super valuable in 
A, sometimes it's produced a lot of really interesting and successful ideas that weren't consensus among the founders and B, just led to a really sort of healthy working relationship between the three of us. Yeah, I see. It's about like measurement again. To validate anyone had, had a hypothesis, they can put it in the system to validate that. One more thing before we go into the technical aspect. What's the meaning behind the name Hex? This is kind of a funny story from Barry. We were really just looking for a name and Barry saw some like hexagonal tiling. And hexagonal tiling is actually like a really interesting mathematical concept and also has a lot of wordplay that you can do with it. So there wasn't really a huge amount of initial meaning going into it. We kind of really just like liked the sound of it and liked all the, you know, design and the possibilities from it. And yeah, we've been able to like really play on the like hex is magic or like hex is math, like all of those things in some of our branding, some of our internal stuff, which has been fun. Yes, that we have very unique and the brand is still down. Let's take people into a few of the technical problems that the hex platform is built to solve. Based on my research on the website, Hex ideal users are analytically technical who need better tools to access and manage more sophisticated workflows. So could you mind explaining this pain point in more detail and how the Hex logic UI will be able to address them? So I've built a lot of analytics tools in my career and I've watched users use them. And one of the most common problems I've seen with particularly low code or no code tools, is that your best users, your most creative and dedicated users will really quickly reach the limit of what the tool can do. And that's just super frustrating for them. And you can lose a lot of these people when they just run out of stuff that they can, they're trying to build these really complicated things and they aren't able to. And then on the flip side, you see a bunch of tools that you can write code, but you also have to think about all of this other stuff like okay, well, you know, I've written my code and now I have to, I don't know, package it into a Docker image and then throw that up on AWS and actually host this server. And they don't really allow people, they allow great flexibility and power, but they make you think about all of these other things and learn all of these other sets of technologies that aren't actually core to your job. And so I think with Hex, we basically kind of try to solve both of those things by allowing you to have both write code and have that flexibility, but not actually think about, for example, the deployment. And our product philosophy has really been around, you know, having this low bar and barrier to entry, but then a high ceiling in terms of what you can actually build. This is a blog post on his website called Long Live Code. I think Barry written it and then explained a lot of these pain points that you just mentioned. It was a lie that I really like, you know, reflecting on what you just said. The next generation of data tools should tap into that same low floor, high ceiling ethos. Um, and it seems like, you know, this is what you, know, you guys are building upon, right? They're embracing the quality and just the ethos. It's like, you know, these users are technical people to try to embrace the technicality a bit, but they, they need the right sort of context, less abstract, right? In order to, to do that. Kind of similar to what you mentioned earlier, the conversation about like how do you become a TA and teaching some of these more abstract concepts to a you know, non-CS measure. I, I thought yeah. I think that was an interesting analogy. Yeah, for sure. As data teams become more sophisticated, it gets harder for them to communicate the value of their work. So how has collaboration traditionally been done in both small and large data teams from your experience working at Panty and Remix? And how does the sharing capability feature within Hex can address some of those shortcomings? So we did a bunch of user research before really getting into the development side of Hex. And I think we saw a couple pretty common modes. 
So one was literally just screenshotting charts and putting them in PowerPoint decks, which is just a huge amount of work because you run these analyses and then the stakeholder comes back and is like, well, what if you tweak this parameter? And what if you tweak that parameter? And what if we model it slightly differently? And every time they have like a small little request, you have to go and run the whole thing all over again and do the whole process all over again. And then kind of on the other side, we saw we started calling the data Rube Goldberg machine, which was basically where you do something like, OK, we have a local code notebook and we would do our analysis and then we would like push it up to the cloud and run it on schedule. And then we would use that scheduled run to dump data into a table in the data warehouse. And then we'd have our LookML model sitting on top of that. And then the stakeholder would be looking at it in Looker. And this works and it's much more, it sort of avoids some of the screenshotting charts problem. It's much more flexible. People get a lot more access to the data, but it's really, really brittle and hard to maintain. And, you know, so this is really what we were trying to address when we started Hex is this kind of sharing pain point. And right now we solve all of that by A, you can quickly just take your analysis and turn it into a narrative, interactive app, when share with one click instead of going through and screenshotting everything. And then to update, all you have to do is change your logic and, and save again, basically. And we're maintaining all the infrastructure for you. So you don't have to worry about having this like really brittle sequence of things kind of stapled together in order to get that fully interactive experience on the other end. Yeah, I see users can invite stakeholders and customers and team members to collaborate on them, right? And they can comment and lip comment for teammates and then control who can edit it. it, it almost like Google Docs, right, for data projects. Um, yeah, exactly. At the high level, you know, it sounds very simple, intuitive, but I, I assume there's a lot of engineering back-end challenges behind the design of that. I'm just curious, was there any particular engineering challenges that you have to tackle in order to actually architect such a seamless experience? Yeah, a couple big ones. One is security. So what we allow people to do, which you wouldn't necessarily get in a traditional BI tool, is write arbitrary code. And normally the goal of building a secure application is to prevent people from running arbitrary code. But obviously that is a pretty core piece of a code notebook. And so being able to do that in a way that is isolated from the rest of the stack, from the rest of the internet in ways that people aren't actually getting, you know, unauthorized access to parts of our stack with the ability to have all of Python at their fingertips has been a really interesting engineering and security challenge. And that's one that we continue to invest in over time. We also on that front really want to encourage people to build more secure applications for themselves and building out tooling around, hey, how do you handle secrets appropriately? How do you handle your connections to your data securely, things like that. How do you build SQL without allowing yourself to be SQL injected? That's a lot of the core of how we're building some of the product experience. So I think security is a big technical challenge that we've been focusing on over time. And then I think another interesting one that people don't necessarily really think about is the workflows for doing iterative analysis and exploratory analysis are pretty different from a technical level than what you would do in an app and actually an app that's running in production. And so we've had a lot of really interesting technical stuff around how we're actually fundamentally executing the Python on the back end and basically taking a notebook, which is built in this exploratory iterative way, and then turning that into a stable web app. There's a bunch of stuff that we've done under the hood in the kernel to make that a smoother process. But overall, that's still one big challenge that we're facing on the technical side. 
I see yeah, solving enterprise security problem and make the transition between a notebook EDA approach to what is a UI web app. Just one thing I wanted to touch on is like really hex focus on notebook as first class citizen, right? And, you know, using, I mean, even the logic UI was based on a notebook based interface. And we will know that, you know, notebook is a very de facto way for data scientists and analysts to conduct their work. And that's probably the, one of the reasons why Hex you know, adopt that. But where do you see the evolution of notebook tools in the next few years? Do you think they're going to keep being embraced by data practitioners? Or do you think there might be opportunity of, for a new type of interface that uh, might disrupt that? I think when you think about notebooks, I think there's two pieces of that, which are both fairly distinct and are probably going to go in different directions. So one is the notebook UX of being able to have small pieces of logic, basically a REPL that you just run pieces of your analysis, build it up over time, and you can rerun things really quickly. That I think is a fantastic UX for a lot of analyst workflows. And I think that is actually, that's not gonna go away anytime soon. There's a lot of people who love it for a good reason. I think when people complain about notebooks, a lot of the things that they're complaining about are actually in the underlying implementation of how notebooks run, whether it's that they're memory bound. And so it's whatever, you know, you, you can't do the kind of big data operations in notebooks that maybe you would be able to do on a cloud. Or, you know, the, another one that people complain about a lot is this hidden state problem where, you know, you've set a bunch of variables and then you run things out of order and all of a sudden your notebook is in this weird state and you don't know how it got there or how to get it out of it. Those things I think are, I see them as implementation details and, I, I think that will get, there will be a lot of innovation in that space over the next few years. So notebooks as a UI, really great, probably around for a while. And then I think the underlying technology will definitely change and improve over time. Absolutely. I think, I think notebook is great for like prototype experimentation and visualization, right? But on the other hand, like you already mentioned, it's hard to put them into production because, you know, using yeah. control is definitely one thing that is hard to do, you know, especially when you have that kind of interface and it seems like. This is something that I just also try to show with our capability. It's been historically challenging for data teams to justify their ROI with respect to functional stakeholders in the rest of the organization. This is a blog post on Hex website I got a chance to read. I've just found that super interesting. Would you mind unpacking this nuanced problem for the uninitiated? And then, you know, how does the interactive app user features within Hex enable data practitioners to do data work that matter? Yeah, so this is probably, this is a very complex topic and I think is bigger than the scope of one podcast, but a couple things that stand out to me. So one big one is, and this is true in software engineering too, is always make sure that you really understand the problem that you're actually trying to solve and what the success criteria actually are, because it might not always be exactly the same as the specific thing that you've been asked for. It's really, really important in terms of actually having that kind of ROI on your investment. But I also think it's a lot about the work product that you produce. If you're building decks, the amount of value that you can deliver is limited by the number of hours that you spend working on it. And there are only so many hours in a day. But if you're building interactive apps, that impact is the combined value of everyone who uses it, which is tens or hundreds of times more than what you can do on your own. So your ROI just becomes a lot bigger when you're building these applications than when you're building sort of static work product. You know, in that blog post, as I read, and you know, I think there was like three different 
phase from organizational structure to project scoping, right? And we touch on this idea loosely to our conversation as well as the tools being able to demonstrate right, the value of what you already mentioned with interactive app. I think the core thesis of that process data practitioner doesn't really have to justify the ROI and other stakeholders when they look at the value, they're going to like be the advocate, the champion for the team, right? Within the rest of the organization, right? So do the work inbound, advocate for them as well. I just thought that it's be super interesting because, you know, traditionally data has just been considered as like a, almost like a support unit for the teams, but like given these evolution tools like this, you know, they can actually be a more uh, strategic uh, unit within the rest of these enterprises. It's just curious if you share that same vision on the evolution of data as a service or data as a function in the enterprise. I think we do. I do think that there's like a lot of different modes that data teams operate in. And so, you know, data as a service, data as a function, I think just like the reality is you're going to be in across modes a lot of the time. And again, I think about this in terms of building a product as well, but like you look at the people who you're building stuff for, and if they're like, you can rip hex out of my cold dead hands, like it's become so integral to the core processes and the core workflows of the business because we built things that actually integrate into the operations, that is just much, much easier to say, look how much value we're providing than if you're providing, you know, a few charts periodically when people ask. Absolutely. Looking forward, Hex will focus on some of the key capabilities such as an amazing editor experience, deeper collaboration, easier access, and exceptional security. So can you share a few exciting things on the roadmap? that your team is working on for Q2 and Q4 of 2021? I think that's right. In, in particular, I think continuing to invest in our really flexible, powerful editor experience with SQL, Python, visual elements into a single UI, that's going to be a big theme. I also think we can do a lot more, quite frankly, to make the apps, the reports that people are building really powerful and beautiful. And then I think on the third part, there's some other really just bigger technical experiments that we're playing around with right now that I personally am excited because I think they could actually start to move past some of the technical assumptions like I was talking about earlier with code notebooks today and basically allow users to work in really new and interesting ways. And I'm excited to kind of get those prototypes in the, in the hands of users and see what they can do with them. Absolutely. I'll be sure to include the documentation that you guys have and show notes so people can take a look and see some of the tutorials that are being put out there as an example of prototype how these features might look like. So let's take off your engineering hat and put on your father hat. Hiring is a critical responsibility of any early stage startup father. What are some of the valuable lessons that you have learned in order to attract the right people who are excited about Hex mission? I think we're solving such a common problem that honestly, the best hiring tactic we've found is been just to hire people who are like, Hex would have made my life so much easier at my last job. And this is great for a lot of reasons. I mean, obviously people are really excited and motivated to be building this product that would have made their lives so much easier before. But I think even more importantly at Hex, we really want everyone to have this kind of ownership uh, and impact over the actual product and the vision and having folks who have experienced that pain specifically in the past has actually led to a lot of really amazing product ideas from all over the company, not just kind of from the product side. I suppose given the stage of the company, the focus probably on engineering mostly, or was there any other sales marketing and things like that, that you guys are also looking too high? Yeah. I mean, we're hiring pretty much everything right now. Right now we're about 
two thirds product and engineering and one third more on the customer facing sales side. But, you know, we've been seeing a fair amount of traction in people using it. Um, so we're definitely looking to scale out both of those teams right now. This question might loosely related to that, but I think it's important to set a relevant company culture right at the start. And I think part of that, you know, any early hire that given the stage is probably going to have a direct impact on how the culture might evolve over, you know, the next few years, perhaps, right? What are some of the things that you and your co-founders look for in some of these new highs in order to ensure that they are culture fit, whatever that word means? Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of stuff that goes into building a really healthy and vibrant company culture. I think one thing that we really like to think about at Hex is making that a collaborative experience and not just, you know, the founders kind of dictate from on high this is what the culture must be. And like, everybody must subscribe to that. So we did an exercise a few months ago about trying to talk through as a team, hey, what are our, what actually are our sort of emergent values? And what are our aspirational values? You know, like, where are we today? How does the team work? And then where do we want to move that culture? And you can actually see the results of that on our website. If you're curious, we have our hex values up in our hex handbook. And that's going to be an evolving document. That's kind of where we're at today, but we've added a lot of people since then. And I think a lot of people bring like valuable new contributions to the actual culture. And so I think there's a couple core things that we have today that we look for in folks, but at the same time, like it's a living thing and culture is a living thing. And I, I do think hiring people who care about that and who want to help us build the kind of, you know, vibrant company culture over time is getting those early hires in is just, that's the most important thing. I guess on another note, I'm just curious, is the company is pretty much like grow throughout COVID. This virtual work environment, does that have a, any significant impact on the way you conduct interviews, you learn about people, organize team? I think that's like a pretty relevant question for anyone. Lots of people thinking about that right now. Yeah. And I think, yes, obviously it does. Well, I think on the interviewing side, it's actually been nice because it's a lot easier to schedule around people's you know, people's work schedules, people don't have to take a day off from work, we can kind of spread the interviews out over time in a way that's a lot, I think, just a lot nicer for folks. Instead, interviews used to be this grueling, like eight hour long process where you'd show up at the company and just get grilled for hours and hours on end. And now we can actually have, I think, just quite frankly, a much better candidate experience based on, on doing interviews remotely. And I think, honestly, like, I think we should continue doing that. I don't think there's a huge reason to like have nine hours of interviews on the same day. And then I think on the company culture side and sort of team building, the biggest thing that I think is just so important in building a healthy culture is having everybody have this, you know, just fundamental empathy and understanding for everybody else on the team. And, you know, they're all humans, we're all humans, and we need to treat each other respectfully and kind of I think assuming best intent is really important in a lot of cases. You know, no one's deliberately trying to do the wrong thing. And building that empathy is, I think, a bit harder when everybody's remote because you don't get the kind of sort of casual social interactions that you would get at an office. And so you don't get to naturally necessarily understand the person on the other side of the Zoom call as a person, not as a person in a meeting that you're having right now. And so I think generating opportunities to do that remotely has something, some of these things like, oh, like remote team happy hours, they're okay. They don't really capture it, I feel like. 
So generating those opportunities to help people understand each other and empathize with each other and build that kind of social fabric of the team is something that I think you have to do a lot more deliberately when you're remote. So yeah, building and scaling that empathy for the team. I think given your experience, you know, at the previous company, you try to grow and being a mentor. And I think that Brian and Joe will also given that. And it'd be interesting if, you know, maybe a future remote work can figure out a way to engineer serendipity into their roadmap. That'd be cool. We talk about company building and culture. Another thing I want to touch on is obviously getting clients. Finding early adopters is notoriously challenging for any enterprise product. Based on the homework for this conversation, I believe that Hex customers included well-known companies like Glossy, Immigr, Pez, Charles Park, and Reserve AI, some of the pretty interesting consumer and enterprise companies. So what were some of the challenges that your team had to overcome to find these early adopters? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge is just identifying, or at least for us, was just identifying the right user profile. We started pretty broad, you know, like anyone who uses Python to do any kind of data stuff, whether it's data analytics or data engineering or data science. And we ended up just discovering that the workflows in that category are very, very broad. And while we'd identified some pain points, not everybody had those pain points because they were doing different jobs and doing different things. And so we, we spent some time trying to really focus down on, okay, who are the set of users that are actually having this set of problems? What are they trying to do? And that's how we really honed in on, hey, there's this group of analysts who are technical, who are writing code, who are deeply underserved by the tooling today. And that, I think, really allowed us to go from having a broad product that was kind of neat, but wasn't really solving a pain point for anyone to actually sort of having a core set of users who really love using Hex. What is the actual process of identifying this very, very core set of customers? Because my assumption is that you have to do things that don't scale by like just talk to like hundred and hundred of customers. But I'm just curious, what's your playbook for identifying those pain points optimally? Yeah, so I think the first part was we were right in our initial thesis that this part of the collaboration and sharing part is actually a pain point for some people. So taking that and really being sort of categorizing who we were talking to in sales conversations and who was like, oh yeah, yeah, like I have that problem. And who was like, oh, that sounds neat, but you know, not super compelling. And looking at that data and saying, okay, well, this is the first thing that was just sort of an observational thing of like, this is the shape of team. This is the shape of company that is more likely to have this problem. And from there, once we were sort of in companies, we started looking at the people who were using it and the people who weren't using it and what were their roles and what were they asking for? And all of that really, I think, helped us solidify the actual specific profile. Like at the beginning in a sales outreach conversation, do you focus on any specific sector or any specific size, stage company? How do you close down that client persona almost? Yeah, we definitely focused on size more than anything else, I think, because our product is pretty broad. People do data analytics in a lot of industries. But I think that we weren't early on, we weren't quite ready to go up market, you know, like big enterprise companies. But we needed to have companies that were big enough to have sharing and collaboration problems. And so there's sort of this like, mid-size company where they have data teams, they've been investing in their data teams, but their data teams are still small relative to the organization. They probably don't have big 
engineering teams to support their data teams. So they can't build a lot of this stuff in-house. That's sort of the shape of company that we really narrowed in on that often has this kind of challenge. And just looking at companies like Glossy and Imager, this is a well-known consumer product. And you're right, their data function might be a small subset within the bigger, more consumer product engineering stuff. So that is like the type of persona that you focus on. Well, as we talk about, you know, finding new customers and try to expand as tech grows and expand with your new highs, what are some of the go-to-market initiatives that you're most excited about moving forward for the company? So right now, Hex is available. It's four teams who come and have a conversation with us, and then we kind of get you set up with a, a paid team plan. And that's great. But I think what I'm really excited about in the go-to-market side is shipping what we're calling the community edition, which will allow people to just roll up and get started and get a lot of value out of Hex without having to go through the whole sales process. And we're, we're already seeing so much cool stuff from the teams that we do have on the product that I just, I just can't wait to get it into the hands of a much broader set of people and see what kinds of things they build with it. It's like a freemium. Model. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately that will be part of the, the freemium model will be part of our sales process. I think with enterprise GTM these days, a lot of companies are understanding the value of product-led growth, like, you know, bottom-up discovery instead of top-down sales. So it seems like these are some of the initiatives that has usage adoption and brand awareness, right? Even, you know, these new community users can provide feedback for the product along the way. So in addition to that, I saw that on the website, there's also a section called gallery that is actually display examples of how-tos showcasing some of the capabilities of Hex. Would you mind want to like share anything related to the design? What's the context for that landing page? This is something that we're going to be investing in a lot more over the next few months that you'll see. So we actually just are bringing on someone very shortly to be a community advocate. And a lot of that is going to be building content and community around using Hex. We're already starting to do this. We have a few partnerships that we're doing with people who write data science blogs to kind of help them build sort of interactive blog posts using Hex. And a lot of this is, I think, a combination of like, hey, really showcasing you know, all of the things that you can do in Hex. Um, and then also giving people these powerful tools that they can actually like do stuff with or maybe clone, they can copy it and then modify it, use for their specific workflows. So they're just starter packs for data science in a lot of ways. This is a very exciting phase. I think I passed the early, early stage, early stage, you know, I think community engagement and that route-ish advocacy content, all that kind of things are some of the things that startup focus on. And it seems like Hexa on the right traction to execute some of those different GTM motion, right? Finally, Hex raised a 5.5 million seed round last year, uh, led by uh, Amplify Partners, some other well-known angels, investors, and other amazing funds. You know, what fundraising advice could you give for founders who are seeking the right investors for their startups? So I think there are two big things that I've found to have been helpful in figuring out who to work with as an investor. The biggest thing is new companies, you go through lots of ups and downs. And the number one thing is you really want to make sure that this person that you're working with is a person that you trust to have your back when the chips are down, because they will be down at some point. The other thing that I think about is to find people who have a bit of a complementary perspective from you. For example, if you know that you tend to be a little bit more risk averse, finding someone who can push you a little bit. Or if you are really good at product, finding someone who balances you out on the go-to-market side. But you have to keep in mind, these people are not going to be experts in your business. Only you are an expert on your business. But often they can provide a little bit of a different perspective on some of the problems that you're facing and just provide 
sort of insights that you might not have thought of before just because you have a different background. And so those are two things that we've really looked for in our early investors. And I do think that that's really played out pretty well for us. I'm just curious, how many conversation, fundraising conversation that you have, not specific, but I'm sure I'm trying to understand what's the ratio of, you know, actually getting investment versus, you know, the average. Obviously, like, you know, this is like a dark art. There's no like sign to it. But given the specific context of the product that Hex is being sold and tied up BC firm that focused on enterprise, you know, analytics and data, things like that, how's that process of searching look like for you? Yeah. I mean, the joke way to say it would be, you know, when you're a startup, just always be raising. I think like for a very short period of time, you're in like an actual formal fundraising process. This is a little bit less my realm than sort of Barry, our CEO's realm. But you're honestly just constantly having conversations with folks, even when you're not actively looking for more money. And this is really important because for us, it was super important to find people who were bought in to our product vision and also people that we really just wanted to work with. And you can only really figure that out, out of, you know, over time by having a lot of conversations with people. So really, there's just like a lot of informal, you know, meeting with the founders, meeting with the partners that goes on over time. And then when you're actually ready to raise, a lot of the time, we actually already had just a pretty narrow list of the folks that, you know, we wanted to work with. They were already pretty bought in to the product. And we didn't need to like pitch 80 people in order to get in order to get funding because we've been sort of whittling that down over time and building those relationships. So I think that's the biggest takeaway that I've had from our fundraising rounds is like, you don't just, you know, waltz into a partner's office and give this amazing pitch. And they're like, okay, we're going to give you a lot of money. So it's really about understanding each other and the relationship building and convincing them of the product vision over time. And that's really how you end up with a successful round. Just uh, try to maintain some of the informal conversation uh, open up to serendipitous opportunities so you know when the time is coming you already have confidence in the type of people who might be good partners and they also have share the same vision i think those are good wisdom for personal partners in general so caitlin at this point of conversation i do want to move on to the final closing segment in which i'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions and then you can you know give quick answers for the listeners number one name three people in the data community whose work you admire yeah well i think Tristan and Claire over at DBT, I think they have got a phenomenal product and we sort of take a lot of product wisdom from them. I think from a technical side, like what Wes McKinney has done with Pandas and now Arrow, I think is super, super cool. And we're actually utilizing a lot of that in our stack today. I think that's been really awesome. And then also just from a technical leadership standpoint, I've been super impressed with what Devaris Brown over at Maraxa is doing. That's kind of like something that I look as like he's a few stages ahead as a, as a startup technical leader. I think he's been doing a great job there. Number two, name one book that you could recommend for people, maybe even technical folks who want to cultivate a leadership mindset. So I'm not actually a huge fan of this book specifically, but I think the underlying research for me was really, really critical in helping me develop a leadership mindset. And that's the research by Carol Dweck on growth mindset versus fixed mindset. I think the book is pretty long and is like trying to make a book out of this one concept, but the actual like internalizing the growth mindset has been really, really important to my growth as a leader. Yeah, that's a great answer. And then finally, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the early stage data practitioners on Twitter. Uh, what could you tweet about? <laughs> um, honestly, if I'm being, if I'm being very honest with myself, it would probably be a meme of some kind. Like maybe, I don't know, like the guy with the butterfly, like being like, I don't know, CEOs buying Snowflake. Is this being data-driven? Something like that, probably. Awesome. Yeah, for sure. So, Kelly, I think that's a great way to end our conversation. 
I really enjoyed chatting with you today, learning about your background from studying skills at Stanford to become an engineer at Palantir, working towards various phases of the company to transitioning to working a startup like Remix and now founding Hex. A lot of great wisdom and insight throughout the way, ranging from product and technical perspective as well as a way to grow a diverse and inclusive engineering teams, different product features that your team Hex is developing, as well as some of the valuable lessons on hiring, finding early clients and go-to-market motion and even fundraising. I'll be sure to include all the blog posts and you know documents and links about Hex under the website in, in the show notes so that listeners can have a chance to take a look and reach out if they're interested in learning more about the company. But I had a great time today and I appreciate it and hope you have a great rest of your day. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This has been super fun. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.